you know, in um, <clears throat> Buddhist psychology, there are these three personality types that mirror the the um, the principle. Sounds a little loud to me. Um, that mirror the principle. Um, uh, things that cloud freedom, which is greed, hatred, and delusion. So there's uh, the greedy personality type. There's the opposite, which is the aversive personality type. And there's the deluded personality type. And without getting into it, I'm definitely the aversive type. Like everything is like when I walk into a room, what could be different? And it makes... <clears throat> For it's, it's actually been um, a positive thing in my social activism because social activists are very often aversive types in the world. Um, so I say that because I have a song title too. Uh, since everybody is sort of invoking musical themes. Um, and my song is a little aversive, but actually done by a Dharma practitioner. And the song is, what does love have got to do with it? Got to do with it. What's love but a secondhand emotion? <laughs> by Tina. <clears throat> What does it have to do with this world that feels very hard these days? So many things on so many levels seems to have gone askew, more than that. Almost dismembered, fragmented, and at tremendous odds with ourselves the larger culture and the body politic. It disrupts stability just in the field so that even the ongoing challenges that all of us face, whether it's aging, illness, dying, or those experiences with our loved ones, our, our families, the stressors of raising children in such a hostile world. You know, and the, the acute disparities that seem only to get worse and more severe in its impact on vulnerable communities. There is this feeling that life is really hard and harsh. <clears throat> and perhaps this is just the existence of the first noble truth, that there is suffering in the world. But, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't live in an enlightened world. We just don't live in an enlightened world. These external conditions are dismantling our social programs of equity and culture and arts and this accumulation of, of economic gain and greed for very few as opposed to the many. With whole communities being demonized and physically even assaulted for their identity, their race, their ethnicity, their orientation, their gender. 
the greed, hatred, and delusion seems to be epidemic. <clears throat> Many of you know that I do a lot of diversity and anti-racism work, both inside and outside of Dharma communities. And I have never been so disappointed and disillusioned with my own limitations in this, in this aspiration. And, and I have never been so disappointed in the shortcomings of organizational and spiritual leadership these days or the imperfections in the communities, and it's being mirrored in our larger culture. I read this very depressing analogy of the, po the history after the Civil War with the radical nature of the Reconstruction and the, the, um, the shutdown in 1877 and the, um, the repressive nature of the blowback of the Jim Crow era as an analogy to the post-Obama era and the blowback of the current presidency. And yet, we always talk about freedom and liberation. And there are these seemingly smaller experiences of the hindrances, the obstacles to freedom and liberation, the, you know, the restlessness, the greed, the aversion, the sloth and torpor, the doubt. But I have heard few conversations when the awakened mind and the unconditional heart just don't happen. We always talk about freedom and liberation and un unconditional love. But what happens when even conditional love feels really hard and difficult to access? What happens when we have to let go of the goal of practice? I have a friend who <clears throat> became a Roman Catholic priest post-Vatican II in 1965, when the brilliance of, the, of the, um, that the changing nature of the scriptural interpretations began to really affect and be inclusive of, of uh, Roman Catholic communities internationally. And... Um, and then the years after that in which every single change began to get shut down. Until the mid-80s when my friend disrobed and just left. And he did not just leave the order, he left faith. More sadly, just 10 days ago, um, the 14-year-old the grandson of Dharma friends of mine, whom I only know in pictures, beautiful young boy who excelled in sports and art and study, 
suicided in Mississippi. And even though it wasn't in the description, you know, from my background, I wonder, what were the conditions that created such despair in this young being's identity? Was it his orientation? Was it his gender? Was it something? It didn't matter what it was, but he felt so different that he didn't belong in this life. So that's one, that's the escape, that's the aversion as a response to the despair. The opposite possibility when disillusionment or disappointment emerges is that we go to idealized hope. We go around the issue in order to not deal with the disappointment itself. And so John Wellwood, as early as 1984, talked about spiritual bypassing. I coined the term to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist communities I was in and also in myself. Although most of us were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideals and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. We often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence, to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace. Absolute truth is favored over relative truth, emptiness over form, transcendence over embodiment, detachment over feeling. The bypass implies, as you can feel, a shortcut. The tendency of the mind to want an easier way out. Instead of going through the the difficulty, somehow avoiding that, that unpleasantness. How do we turn towards what is arising, even if it's the despair, as part of our spiritual practice? To pretend that it doesn't exist is a spiritual bypass. To throw everything out, including life, as meaningless is the ultimate escape. It is pushing away unpleasant wanting the pleasant, meaning the, the ultimate reality. After a, a very long struggle with a debilitating illness, one of my close friends lost a dear one. And, um, and they were in, in a grief and loss state that was inconsolable, as many of you have experienced and can feel, because it's a human feeling. And one of the, one of the instructions that was given to her by uh, a teacher was 
that arhants don't need to grieve. Arhants, so arhants are the enlightened ones. Is the point of practice really to negate the very human experiences that that emerge, even if they're intense and extreme? What happens when we get stuck in the quicksand of our life with no, no foreseeable resolution? What if there are just limitations that prevent us from seeing a way out of the difficulty, the suffering, the first noble truth of even despair? Whether it's psychological like loss or, or depression or sociocultural as in oppression or racism, heterosexism, transphobia or any other unconsciousness that might go beyond a single life's experience, a a collective unconscious that we experience in our world. Conflict, climate destruction. For me, I had to really dig deep into my sense of what practice is, into the integrity that holds me in practice in order to navigate these extremes of disillusionment and disappointment. And beyond any specific teaching, beyond any specific teacher, beyond any aspiration that I had, I was trying to figure out what was calling underneath all of that, that experience. In the absence of hope, what is underneath this, this yearning, this, this yearning of spirit that has drawn me into this particular faith tradition, but just as a seeker in life. And, and what emerged in that exploration was a question of, can I turn towards this as well? Can, in this inadequate language, Can I love this as well? Can I turn towards this despair or the imperfections or the broken places just like the objects of awareness, whether it's the breath or the phrase? How do I not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Even if my North Star is extinguished. And I realized that I experienced a gap in my practice. I experienced a gap in in how I heard the teachings. Because we rarely turn our attention, our mindfulness, 
towards not awakening. I'm going to invoke Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King because his weekend is coming up. And he wrote, we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. What is that connection between despair and hope? Because we need both. We need the absolute aspiration of hope and the relative path of disappointment. If we only have the idealization, how do we ever get there? Unconditional love. I always heard that term in my upbringing. And I never knew how to get there until I actually came into contact with these teachings that showed me this incremental path. If we only have a path, where are we going? And why are we walking it? <laughs> we do not awake without moments of not awakening. That's the contradiction. And if we don't look into these states of not awakening, it can create a crisis of faith. At least that's what I found for myself. Because the idealized is so rare, if not impossible, it brings this crisis of faith of why am I walking this path? But if I look moment to moment at the places that I am not awake, There's awakening in that. The absolute truth though of awakening and the relative truth of not are really two sides of the same coin. They're not separate from. The open heart and the clenched one are the same experience. We cannot experience awakening without not awakening. So I'm drawn, and this is a work in progress for me, so it, it's interesting to be able to express it in my own practice towards the, factor, the seven factors of non-enlightenment. And some of you know the seven factors of enlightenment. For those of you who are relatively new, it's mindfulness, an investigation or curiosity, effort and energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. All elevated ideals and skills. But what about when I am unconscious versus mindful, bored out of my mind rather than interested, lethargic, depressed, agitated, distracted, and reactive? Are those unfamiliar states to any of us? 
what is the range of experience between mindfulness and unconsciousness? Life is not dual. These are not light switches. You are not just awake or not. What is the range in between? That's where life gets lived. What are the shades of gray? Is it possible to feel the relationship between unconsciousness and awareness? What is the in-between between lethargy and energy? Boredom and investigation. How does despair move into joy? What are the nuances between agitation and tranquility? And the landscape between distraction and concentration? And what happens between reactivity and equanimity? I think there are volumes that could be written because these are not just polar opposites. So just as an offering of my own rumination and reflection, traversing the complexities between despair and joy. Words are a little bit inadequate, so I just bear with me and just feel the energy beneath the words of despair, hopelessness, depression, grief, pain, sadness, regret, Distress, dejection, worry, heavy-heartedness, gloominess, troubled, conflicted, irritated, questioning, dullness, indifference, neutrality, Nonchalance, stillness, coolness, calm, refreshed, ease, relaxation, contentment, comfort, gladness, cheer, mirth. Wonder, delight, excitement, rapture, collective joy. What's your experience in weaving that tapestry together so that they are not disconnected from each other? So that regardless of where you find yourself in that spectrum, you are still connected to the whole. 
What integrates awakening with not awakening? And mindfulness, awareness, the power of this practice is to remind us which direction are we pointing towards. If it's despair and joy, which direction are we pointing ourselves towards? Because even if I'm at this extreme, if I'm pointing in that direction, that is the guide. I'm not lost anymore in the despair. Ajahn Chah said, knowing the direction of freedom is half the path. So across this length, which direction are we pointed towards? Which, and it just takes a pivot to remember what is the direction of freedom in the midst of any difficulty. And I'm really interested in what did the Buddha do? How did the Buddha connect the conditioned and the unconditioned? Because really, we only talk about one moment in the Buddha's practice, and that is his awakening. Most of the talks are about his awakening. But that's not the totality of their biography. Tradition tells us, and if you believe the cosmology, but it's metaphorical, that the Buddha had thousands of lives, lived thousands of lives before they actually awoke. Over and over and over again. That means that there were a thousand lives, thousands of lives, that he didn't get awake. I think that's really interesting. And I think that's worth taking in. So if the Buddha was practicing mindfulness, which I assume that he was doing, I would assume that at some point in his life, their life, they became mindful of the fact that they weren't going to become enlightened in that life. They became aware of their own limitations. Despite our best efforts, right? despite everything that we've been given, teachers, teachings. But cumulatively, they were not going to lead to awakening in that particular life. Isn't that what we're doing? Doing the best that we can with our highest aspirations. So we have actually stories of the Buddha's lives in which he didn't awake. It's, called, it's, it's been relegated to what's called the Jataka tales. And um, 
they're actually teachings that are offered more uh, in the cultures of origin of the Dharma than, than in the West. Um, but they were stories of, of the Bodhisattva, the, the previous lives of the Buddha, um, about the ripening of his paramis, the, the qualities of awakening, but that the paramis were not completely ripe yet for awakening. And in this one particular Jataka, there was a prince who was in danger of drowning, and, and um, uh, a beggar ascetic, who was the future Buddha, pulled him from the water. And, uh, but the prince was a very dishonest and, and ungrateful person. And so the prince disingenuously told the, fir- the future Buddha that he could come to his kingdom any time for support. So the ascetic, the wandering uh, a spiritual um, teacher, uh, went to his kingdom and... Um, uh, the king was actually embarrassed to, um, to have this person come who saved his life because it, it uh, showed that the prince had been weak in some way. And instead of supporting the ascetic, the king beat him, uh, had him beaten and uh, dragged to his execution. And so as he was being dragged to his execution, the crowd asked the ascetic, what did you do to offend the king? And um, the ascetic told the story, and the populace got so enraged that they went into the castle, dragged the king, killed the king, and installed the ascetic as the king. (laughs) Now, this is the Jataka tale. That might be a certain kind of justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth type of thing. Not exactly restorative justice in... (laughs) You know, <laughs> right? So the Jataka tales always end with this phrase. When the future Buddha's days were come to an end, they passed away according to their deeds. And according to the imperfect deeds of most of his life, most of their lives, the Buddha did not awaken. So when the Buddha did not awaken, did he experience despair after all this effort? Did they linger in the question of like, damn, what do I do now? Did they grieve the loss of enlightenment? Did the Buddha go through Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief? (laughs) I think they did. Because the Buddha was human. They went through what humans go through. Especially when there's loss or disappointment. Dr. Ross's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, before acceptance is possible. The Buddha said awakening is only possible in this life as a human being. Therefore, 
all the moments of non-awakening are indispensable in this purpose. Can we turn towards, can we love those moments? I love the analogy with Dr. Ross. Because in Western Vipassana, there is this other acronym that many of you are familiar with, which is RAIN. Recognize. Accept. Investigate. And not identify. Right? That's, that's the trajectory of insight Vipassana practice when we come to silent retreat. It was a term, I think, coined by Michelle McDonald Smith and has been used by many teachers. And we tailor the practice for where we are. And so I've inserted Kubler-Ross's five stages in between recognize and accept, right? Because sometimes when we recognize, we just want to shut, we don't want it. We deny it. And then it comes back because that which we repress comes back with greater force. So we recognize it again and we get angry. And there's resentment and even rage. And then we recognize that we're lost in the anger and all of a sudden the anger begins to dissolve and the bargaining happenings. Oh, if I practice for three straight hours without moving, if I go to this retreat, that will help me accept. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. And we recognize and then we get we still don't see the path, so then the depression comes up. But the awareness practice, the beauty of the awareness practice is that that which we are aware of, we are not lost in. When we're aware of the anger, when we're aware of the depression, we're not lost, we're not driven by it. And maybe then the acceptance comes into play. That's been the ebb and flow of my human life. And thousands of lifetimes, I would have to believe at least one of those lifetimes the Buddha lived something like that going back and forth among these worldly winds. What would you do? We've all been there. It's worthy of our practice to turn our care and concern to these states that are part of our human existence. Can we be gentle and kind to the practice itself when it fails us. 
Many of you heard this mantra that, that uh, I use. Of course, the aspiration is that may I be loving and open and aware in this moment. But if I can't be loving, open, and aware in this moment, may I at least be kind. If I cannot be kind in this moment, may I at least be non-judgmental. If I cannot be non-judgmental, may I not cause harm. But if I cannot not cause harm, may I cause the least harm possible. So even in my failure, even in my limitation, even in, in whatever I can't do, I'm still turned towards that direction of freedom. That's the repetition. That's the purpose of the roteness. That's the repetition of the phrases, of the visualizations, is that in the midst of your life, where are we turned towards? Do we remember? Because you do, we do, create these beautiful lives in the places where we're not awake. Your life is beautiful just the way it is. In the midst of both the awareness and the not-awareness. Gently being aware of our unconsciousness, that paradox, that that tension, how do we hold the both and without needing it to be different, without needing a solution in this task-oriented society, without needing, just show me the way. I, nobody can, right? Nobody can live your life. But in weaving these seeming opposites through this this range of experience, we begin to hold the tension that is inherent in our lives. And I will go to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which was such an amazing document to write in the midst of the adversity of imprisonment on paper towels and toilet paper. He wrote, My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess, confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. 
there is creativity and passion and transformation in that tension that we hold between the places that we're awake and the places that we fail. A last passage connecting despair and freedom. which I read in honor of my friend's nephew's young life. It is a passage written by Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked, and it's called Testimony. It was, um, it was debuted by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus in 2012, and it uses the words from the It Gets Better campaign which started, um, I think, in 2011, um, when Dan Savage, who was a gay columnist, just used the term, it gets better, to, as a motivational and an inspirational resource for, for young people in that depth of despair. And it has since, the website has since... Um, recorded 60,000 videos of different stories, including President Obama's, and been viewed over 50 million times. So these are some of the words that um, are part of this musical piece that come from these stories. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be who I am. Every day I don't change, I blame myself. I am not trying hard enough. I don't want to be how I am. When they find out, no one will love me. I'll lose my family and all my friends. I'm, a, I'm trapped like a fish with a hook in its mouth. I'm impersonating the person I show as me. I'm an imposter, I'm a spy behind enemy lines. I pack my feelings so deep inside me they turn to concrete. Every night I ask God to end my life. I'm an abomination. God, take this away, take me away. Today I'm going to jump off my building. Take me away, take me away, take me away. Hang in, hang on, wait, just wait a little longer. I know it now, I know it now. If I had made myself not exist, there is so much that I would have missed. I would have missed so many travels and adventures, more wonders than I knew could be. So many friends with jokes and secrets not to mention the joy of living in authenticity. Sometimes I cry. Life can still be hard, but there is no part of me still crying, hide me. I would have missed the chance to sing out like this with people I love beside me. I have been brave. I grew. And so did those around me. And now look 
what a life I've earned. It gets more than better. It gets amazing and astounding. If I could reach my past, I'd tell him what I've learned. I was more loved than I dared to know. These were open arms I could not see. And when I die, when it is my time to go, I want to come back as me. I want to come back as me. And that is what I believe the Buddha said. I want to come back as me thousands of times in order to awaken. Each time we practice this awareness and loving kindness, we are transforming ourselves, we are transforming the world. We begin to hold the unholdable. We connect this broken heart and this raging mind. We look for the precious wisdom that's embedded in the rage so that we are not consumed by the rage itself. We link ourselves to the experience of despair and care for it and love it and dare it to lead us to freedom. This is the magnitude of our spiritual practice. All the contradictions, all the tensions, all the paradoxes of awakening and not awakening, everything in between, And that's what love has got to do with it. It is second-hand, and it is third-hand, and it is fourth-hand, and it is fifth-hand. It takes all of our hands because this love is so much easier together when we love together. The full range, holding the despair of the world, knowing that there's freedom. And that constitutes the totality of our practice. It's not just about our own experience. So, thank you for our practice in freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.